Football is back, and right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football, with games being played nearly every day, and with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast. I tell you what, George, the title of this pod is taking on new meaning as we get towards the end of the season. We are an EFL podcast brought to you by The Athletic. And I'm Ali Maxwell. On the line with me today is the Ben White to my Liam Cooper, George Ellick. George, can you give me and the listener a quick rundown of what's on today's podcast? Yes, we have a fantastic podcast in store. And we're going to be welcoming Norwich back to the EFL after their relegation from the Premier League was confirmed. And we'll be speaking to the Norwich City reporter for The Athletic, Michael Bailey, about their return. He wrote a piece on the inquest and as to what's going to be happening into next season as well. So we'll be speaking to Michael about that. And we're delighted as ever to be speaking to Matt Slater on all things EFL after the break in football and the season restarting. There have been lots of issues around the game. We're going to be talking to him about the relegation situation in League Two between Macclesfield and Stevenage that still isn't resolved. The five substitutes rule that could be implemented by the EFL and the Premier League next season if they choose to and the transfer window for next season as well. And as we are doing at the moment, we'll be rounding up all the action from midweek as well. So a busy, busy pod. Absolutely. Uh, During this podcast, we will be referring to a fair few articles on the Athletic site, both with our guests, Michael and Matt, uh, but also other things. Certainly one piece I want to flag up by Rafa Honigstein about Birmingham superstar Jude Bellingham. So uh, in order to sign up to the Athletic and read these pieces uh, you can get a 30-day free trial if you're not already a subscriber theathletic.co.uk forward slash efl pod that's all one word efl pod and as i say that will get you a 30-day free trial before your subscription starts so you can check everything on site out before you decide to, to move forward with a subscription Time now for the midweek roundup, and as ever, we'll start at the top of the table. But for the second week in a row, we're recording this on Thursday morning, and Leeds aren't playing until this afternoon. Last time that happened, they smashed Stoke 5 0 in a game that probably could have ended. 9 or 10 nil, and Michael O'Neill wouldn't have been able to have any complaints this time it's home to Barnsley if they beat Barnsley they'll need just one more point at Derby to confirm their promotion back to the Premier League if that sounds interesting to you then as ever make sure you read Phil Hayes' piece after 15 managers and 5 owners at Leeds is football's biggest comeback back on you know what, Ali? I think it might be. Uh, but this time last week, we spoke about the biggest game of the season. It was, of course, West Bromwich Albion versus Fulham. We told a lot of people to make sure they caught it. We might not have been particularly popular after that. <laughs> Got to hold our hands up there. Biggest game of the season does not always equate to best game of the season. At West Brom and Fulham drew nil-nil the other night. And look, uh, there's there's a few ways of looking at this. It was a game that lacked goalmouth action, it's fair to say. Uh, it didn't necessarily lack interesting subplots. It was more of a, a chess match than uh, some sort of um, demolition derby. But um, it, yeah, it was an interesting game in some ways, just not that exciting. The result nil-nil was more helpful for West Brom, you'd say, than for Fulham. Any faint hopes that Fulham could snatch all three points, put only a few points between themselves and West Brom, and then somehow turn that gap over in two remaining games, those are, are laid to rest now. They'll be heading into the playoffs where they'll probably play against Nottingham Forest, barring uh, some collapse from Forest 
in the next two games. Uh, and West Brom, I think a lot of people would have been tuning in, hoping to see this second place West Brom still in the driving seat for promotion to the Premier League, hopefully playing some eye-catching football with their array of attacking talent. Uh, in actual fact, West Brom were pretty happy to let Fulham have the ball for the most part in this game, which might have given the impression that Fulham were the better side, but I don't necessarily think that was the case. And I think increasingly, uh, West Brom and Jalbi and Slavin Bilic, their manager, are, are almost trying to to invite teams onto them a little bit more in the hope that they can hurt teams in transition where there's a bit more space for the likes of Pereira, Diangana, Grasicki to move into. Um, they, like many teams at this level, struggle when the opposition sit in a deep block with a five across the back line or a four, five, one or similar. Those teams are hard to break down and West Brom have struggled at times uh, pre-restart and since the restart. So I think they're trying to manufacture maybe by playing a slightly deeper line, maybe by um, not pressing as high to try and, and invite teams onto them and, and hit them on the break. They probably did have the better chances overall in the game. Diangana had one very good chance. For West Brom, you can understand where the nervousness comes from and you're going to talk me through what happened to third place Brentford in a second, but it's still a simple equation for them. Beat Huddersfield, beat QPR and you'll be a Premier League club. From a Fulham perspective, it's now, I think, five games without conceding, more than seven hours without conceding a goal. Michael Hector at the back was flawless yet again here. And as I say, likely they'll play Forest in the playoff semi-final, not 100% confirmed. And that will be an interesting game as well. They've had two fascinating games, Forest winning at Craven Cottage, Fulham winning at the City Ground. I would look forward to that as a playoff semi-final for sure. Um, automatic promotion, not yet wrapped up. In fact, with West Brom only picking up one point and Brentford picking up all three again, it got ever <laughs> tighter George what happened in their game against Preston it was interesting this because Preston won the reverse earlier in the season and Alex Neal spoke about the need to to bully Brentford as a means to trying to beat them but there's absolutely no way you can bully this Brentford side and the first three three and a half minutes of this game was as dominant a start as you will see from a side they were bang at it the level of intensity the way you know, they broke Preston down three times within three minutes and Ollie Watkins was there to finish off the, the final chance and put them 1-0 up. And it would be a lie to say that it was plain sailing from there. Pre Preston deserve massive credit for the way they came back into the game at Griffin Park, something that not many teams really managed to do. And David Rea was called upon a couple of times to make really important saves, uh, although Brentford had their chances as well to um, to go further ahead. Said Benrahma with one in the first half, which, you know, he deserves credit for kicking the ball as hard as he did. But when the right-hand side of the goal was completely open, you think he might have just rolled it into that far corner as mm. we've seen him do so many times. But, you know, this this Brentford train keeps on rolling. Uh, it's eight wins in a row now. They're just one point back from West Brom. And I was thinking yesterday that we talk so much about Brentford. We talk so much about the recruitment model that Matthew Benham has implemented there and their ability to play a trade and, and replace the players they sell for, for, for good money with those waiting in the wings. And we talk about the individuals themselves, whether it's the BMW from earlier this season, whether it's Pontus Janssen, whether it I've is... I've come up even, with an acronym for uh, Raya Janssen Pinnock, and it's RJP. Uh, it doesn't, it, it's not the same as a, a, a popular <laughs> make of car, but I think it rolls off the tongue. And in many ways, those three, and specifically the improvement that they have given to this Brentford side's defence, I think they're as worthy as the BMW of having their own acronym, to be honest. So well done, RJP. I call, I call them PJR myself, so that's weird <laughs> that we've... Um, but I was going to say, you know, and, and we do give them credit, but the one person who seems to kind of be forgotten in all this is Thomas Frank. <laughs> a guy a guy who hadn't managed um, at this level, or at least in England at this level, before taking on the role after Dean Smith's departure. A guy who was widely, um, you know, Brentford fans weren't particularly happy with him early on in his reign. There was talk mm. about bringing in an, a, a more experienced assistant to help him. There was even talk about um, him going back into the, into the coaching staff and bringing someone else in ahead of him. But you have to credit him to have be the man who is finally, whether he gets into the Premier League, we don't know, but he's finally turned the Brentfords, always easy on the eye, always impressive when it comes down to the data. But he's the man who's actually turned this side and this group of players into a winning machine. Uh. And, you know, West Brom, you talk about the West Brom game and saying the West Brom, that the point is better for them and it unquestionably is. But I have a feeling West Brom will, will look back and regret not taking the game to Fulham a little bit more there because... Uh. 
it, it's it's very hard. You know, if, if you had to ask me who is more likely to drop points in their next two games, irrespective of the fixtures, it has to be West Brom, given from what we've seen. I think there's an argument to be had that the Brentfords on a show between football restarting and now is the best side we've seen in the championship this season. And you don't really want to give them too much of a, uh, not a head start, but you don't want to let them open that door a little bit because they're going to try and, and barge it down. So um, it wasn't... Yeah, expertly managed by, by Thomas Frank, as you say. He always seems to say the right thing as well. Brentford, as a, a club to manage, is a great place to be because you do get for the most part, the foundations to succeed. Now, sometimes there are eye-catching player sales uh, and, and that tends to be the reality for Brentford most summers. Uh, but in a general sense, I think the structure they put in place helps a manager to succeed and, and Thomas Frank's definitely, at the moment, taking that chance. Eight wins in a row for Brentford. It's a magnificent run. Uh, and yeah, as, as you say, Baggies, you would say, more likely to drop points, but it's still in their hands. One point between the two sides with Leeds uh, above them playing Barnsley on Thursday night. Uh, the playoff picture, George, one of West Brom, Leeds and Brentford will finish third. One of those teams will go into the playoffs. I have said that Fulham and Forest will most likely be the fourth and fifth place team. What about sixth place? Because Cardiff punched their way in not long after lockdown with a great return to football, then lost two in a row having got there. Uh, but a, a good win midweek solidifies their position somewhat. Yeah, this is maybe the biggest win um, of the of the midweek for Cardiff because as you mentioned off the back of two disappointing defeats coming up against a Derby side who with a win would have really put the pressure on them and, um, and I think Jordan Neville on points with them. Yeah. And Derby would have been frustrated with this one because they it was two absolute gifts that they gave away for the two Cardiff goals. Um, and one of which <laughs> was from a man who's made quite the impact at the club. But Wayne Rooney trying to dribble, dribble his way out of trouble uh, was dispossessed. And that could be, I mean, that probably was the goal in the end that's going to end Derby's hopes of a return to the Premier League this season. Um, you can't take anything away from them for the effort they've made to get in the position they were in. And I think they're going to be very strong for it in the next campaign if they can keep hold of their young players. But for Cardiff, this was a result that puts them in the driving seat for that sixth place spot with just two games to go. Now they have two points, uh, breathing space over Millwall and Swansea in behind. You've got to now say, you'd have thought, with Preston losing to Brentford, that it's got to be a race between those three in order to mm. get that last playoff position. Tomlin with the winner there. He is the type of player that could have a huge impact in tight playoff games and has had a great impact for this Cardiff side, certainly since Neil Harris took over. Uh, there was a chance for Swansea to put a lot of pressure on Cardiff, even with them having won the night before. They went to Forest and they led twice, but ultimately only left with one point. That would be really, really disappointing for Steve Cooper's side. They, they're not really doing anything at the moment to change our now quite long-term opinion of this side, that they can be excellent in flashes, that they have some very good individual players, but they cannot seem to maintain a performance level, or rather a high performance level, for a whole game. And, and that's why they've given up two goals here, having led the game. A, a, an amazing goal from Rian Brewster. One of those mm. that hasn't been talked about very much. You know, it's inside the box. It's a, it's a first-time strike from a ball. Uh, You're going to make up for that now. I am going to make up for that now. <laughs> uh, this is a... A 20-year-old on loan from Liverpool. Not the first time that there's been Premier League loanees come down to the Championship with a lot of hype attached to them. And let's not pretend that they always light it up. You, you have examples like Tammy Abraham, who joined Bristol City as a young player immediately in the goals, um, had, a, had a chance or didn't get much of a chance with Swansea in the Premier League on loan, then dropped down again with Villa, scored a lot of goals again. And I think Brewster seems to be in, in the same mould. They're absolutely not the exact same type of striker. But this finish from Brewster, uh, a, a low cross from Bidwell on the left, uh, he was inside the box probably 10 or 12 yards out, and it's a sort of swivelled half volley on the bounce, which anyone who's played football at any level basically knows is pretty much the hardest skill, the hardest sort of technique to actually guide a ball where you want it to go. But uh, on his weaker foot, his left foot, to, to guide that with such pace, 
which comes from the timing, not from how hard you swing your leg, of course. Um, and it flew into the top corner past one of the better goalkeepers this season in Bree Samba. So I wanted to shout out Brewster. It's worth watching that goal. If you head to our Twitter page, actually, at NTT20pod, you can watch that goal back. Absolutely brilliant finish. But Sammy Amiobi also had himself a game for Forrest. And uh, we, we, we mentioned it the other day, but worth reminding the listeners that this was not Nottingham Forest's most eye-catching transfer of last summer. They've got informal ties, shall we say, with George Mendes in the same way that Wolves have and did back in the Championship. And there are a few players that have come over from Portugal, for example, who are this type of players whose transfer fees uh, bring a lot of excitement uh, and, and seem to hint at a lot of ambition, a lot of quality. Sami Amiobi picked up on a free transfer from a Bolton side that had struggled at Championship level certainly going forward uh, for the last few years. It was not the most eye-catching transfer, but has ended up being incredible value for Forrest. He scored two brilliant goals from outside the box, one with his right foot, one with his left foot, uh, to get a point here. And, and Swansea giving up two leads, now three points behind sixth place. They'll have to achieve that high performance level for 180 minutes now across two games if they're to get above their Welsh rivals, Cardiff, uh, in, into the sixth spot. It looks unlikely now. In fact, more likely is that Millwall could be the ones to punch their way in. They are just two points behind Cardiff. They're in between Swansea and Cardiff in seventh spot. And you'd say they, they are most likely. They disposed of Blackburn. I say disposed of. That makes it sound like a comfortable <laughs> win. It was a 1-0 win. And it's a funny one with Millwall. Their record since the restart has been okay but not amazing there have been a couple of games where they've looked really poor and I think what it comes down to George and you could probably say this about a few teams is if they can go ahead early in games they're very difficult to break down they're very difficult to get anything out of but one thing they struggle with is when they have the job of breaking a team down especially if they are to go 1-0 down early on for example or against Middlesbrough as we saw last midweek that they're just not that good at creating a ton of chances. So a lot of these games are being played on the margins, but Gary Rowett's side are pretty comfortable with that. We know they're a big threat from set pieces. Uh, and well, in... Go on. Yeah, so I was just going to say, on the, on the Millwall point, I think the crucial thing for them, I mean, they have the reverse of West Brom's last two fixtures, where they've got QPR away to start with, then Millwall at home, sorry, then Huddersfield at home at the end. And they've kept, they've only conceded um, in three games since the restart. There was a 3-2 loss against Derby. There was a one-all draw against Swansea and a 2-0 defeat against Borough. And they're playing against two sides in, in QPR and Huddersfield who are really struggling for goals. Uh, I can see them keeping two back. clean sheets. Is that what you're saying? And, and what I'm saying is, you know, we've already seen from the 1-0 the wins against Hull and Blackburn what a couple of 1-0 wins can do for you. And, you know, if they can keep a couple of clean sheets in those last two games, then Cardiff are going to have to pick up points in order to keep them at bay. Worth pointing out that Millwall in seventh with Gary Rowett in charge. Cardiff in sixth with Neil Harris in charge. On the 3rd of October 2019, Neil Harris left Millwall 18th in the championship after four years in charge. They were only five points above the relegation zone, albeit that is early in the season where gaps haven't really grown yet. Uh, three weeks later, Rowett took over at Millwall. Uh, and then three weeks after that, Neil Warnock left Cardiff, who were 14th at the time. Of course, a, a Premier League club last season. So 14th did not represent a good start to the season. Warnock leaves and Harris is appointed as manager of Cardiff. Cardiff at that point were 14th. They're now 6th. Millwall at the point of his departure were 18th. And they're now 7th. It's a rare, oh, it's a rare example of just everyone winning. This has worked out for absolutely everyone. And that is certainly not always the case, both when you sack a manager, but also when you hire a manager. So congrats to Cardiff and Millwall. It's been an amazing um, period of, of, well, six to nine months, I suppose, since those managerial changes were made. There was a team that had an outside shot of the playoffs, George, in Bristol City, having won two in two since Lee Johnson had left. They went ahead against Stoke in midweek. But it was a one-all draw, which probably puts paid to their playoff chances, do you think? What did this one mean for Stoke City? I think this probably means that Bristol City won't be getting promoted this season. And I think it probably means that Stoke City won't be getting relegated this season. <laughs> I think this means that we are going to be able to watch Bristol City versus Stoke again next oh, season. Oh, yes. Whether or not that's a good thing after this game, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but fingers crossed, both clubs are in better state to uh, to, to do battle uh, in the next campaign. But I think the good news here for Stoke because Michael O'Neill has quite clearly done a fantastic job there and it would have been 
very unlucky and very tough for them to to still face the drop despite getting in a manager who seemingly is the first person to be able to get a tune out of Stoke side in the last three or four seasons. So um, that is a massive benefit. And I know we said this last year, you and I, every year we fall for it, but I can't imagine that Stoke under O'Neill next season will be as abject as they have been for the last couple of campaigns in mm. the championship. Um, but there are other teams who are going to get relegated. What a segue that is. There are other teams who are going to get relegated and one yes. of them lost quite heavily to another one who might also still be relegated. Six o'clock, Tuesday evening. Actually, more more accurately, 6.02, Tuesday evening. Cal Smith puts Wigan 1-0 up against Hull. And there's a feeling, I think as a neutral, of joy for Wigan, We've covered on this pod over the last few weeks what's happened with their administration and how that came out of nowhere and how that threatened to derail what has been one of the most impressive second halves to a season that I can remember at this level, especially coming from a previously relegation-threatened uh, position in the table before Christmas. So when they go 1-0 up, there's a, there's a there's joy for Wigan and then you realise that it's Hull they're playing against and this Hull side are one of the worst teams we've covered and cannot get anything right at the moment and you start to feel a little bit bad for their fans. By the time the halftime whistle blows and it's Wigan 7, Hull 0. I mean, it really is hard to know how to react to that, George. But the old rule about massive halftime leads are they don't they never seem to get added to that much, do they? This one only only finished 8-0, having been 7-0 at halftime. Absolutely astounding. Can you can you remember anything like this uh, in recent times uh, in the EFL? No. I, I quite enjoyed just sending you texts with the number of how many goals had been scored every time they scored. As if you weren't already aware. I just had to tell somebody because my it was very own, so incredible what was going on. My very on. own live score <clears throat> service. Yeah. Although it's not as helpful when it just says the number. Six. <laughs> seven. Um, I can't remember anything like this. And the funny thing is is that the you know the underlying data, the XG data... It, it wasn't as dominant a win as as 8-0. I think Wigan's finishing was superb, aided mm. by some less than ideal goalkeeping from from the man in the, in the Hull goal, um, who, yeah, haven't done too much for this season. But it was um, like the, the first two goals were horrendous defending, like Naismith yeah. free header three yards out, Kiefer Moore receiving the ball with his back to goal at, inside the box and just being allowed to turn and fire into the corner. <laughs> but then basically from the third to eighth goal, they were all <laughs> unbelievable finishes. Kieran Dowell doing what he does best. He's a player who only scores good goals and scored three in this game, the last of which was just the sort of goal that you only score when you're already 7-0 up and everything is going your way. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is it. This was the game that everything went their way. You've got Dowell with three goals and, and an assist. You've got Jamal Lowe with three assists and a goal. It was just one of those afternoons and it's what they deserve. Um, and whether or not they, you know, the, the, the margin of victory is that it may be a little bit fortuitous in terms of, of galvanising a club and, and getting the, the players. You know, I follow Anthony Pilkington on Twitter, for example, who was telling anyone who'd listened, being like, you know, this is what happens when you get a group of guys who are very close, who are good mates and you, you know, you screw them over. This is, this is how they react. Mm. And that, ha- having that siege mentality... Um, you know, there's a certain manager in the Premier League who basically created his whole career in Jose Mourinho <laughs> around creating the siege mentality, enabling players to fight for each other and get the best for each other. Um, their Wigan's game, you know, we said that the West Brom um, Fulham game is the biggest of the season. If you're if you're a relegation um, fan, then surely it's Wigan against Charlton. So Charlton against Wigan um, this weekend is the one to look out for because that is absolutely massive. It's an, it's an absolutely huge game. I mean, Wigan, with no points deduction, are 13th in the table with 57. If we apply our own 12-point deduction, which is something they're appealing against, they are just outside the relegation zone at the moment on goal difference, above Hull and Luton on the same amount of points, 45, with Charlton on 47. So it is really, really, really tight down there, squeaky bum time, and you can't exactly back Wigan to fail now 10 clean sheets in 11 games unbelievable. an unbelievable record and as you mentioned that that intangible spirit that the club is just brimming with at the moment on the pitch uh, and, and all down really to Paul Cook 
and then Sam Morsi, the captain, and it and it drip and it trickles down from there. From a Hull perspective, they've got six points in their last eighteen league games. Um, it, I thought it might be the worst run we've ever covered, and then I remember that South End in League One this season were on five points after eighteen league games. So there you go. Uh, as if this could have got much worse for Grant McCann and his Hull side. Uh, you know, he was just purely apologetic after the game and just despondent, which you can understand. Watching the goals back. It was notable that Wigan's PA system insisted on playing goal music even after <laughs> the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth goals, which really Too must right. have added insult to injury. Pumping in that song, which is the old da 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 da, just piping that into an empty. It's stadium. taken you a long time to sing for the first time on this podcast, Ali, but I'm delighted <laughs> you finally done it. Uh, but let's move on to, to other relegation matters because. Uh, well, Reading, they're already safe. And maybe that's why they put in such a poor performance in midweek, George. They lost to Neil Warnock's Middlesbrough. My question to you is, has he done it? Has he done what we said he would do when he took over with the club just inside the relegation zone? Are they safe? Every time I seem to say a club is safe, they end up the next week looking over their shoulders. But I'm going to say, I think 50 points now, I think is safe. It would take a remarkable um, run of results for those clubs those six clubs down at the bottom below 50 points including Wigan in that it would take a yeah some turnaround for a couple of those to to get up to 50 in order to, to drag the others back in so as far as I'm concerned and this is terrible news for any Middlesbrough fans or Stoke fans or, or Birmingham fans listening I think especially because they've got that um, goal difference advantage over Birmingham as well I think that Middlesbrough will live to fight another day and I have a feeling we're going to see Neil Warnock at the helm again next season yeah, and good to see Patrick Roberts uh, shining in this one. He scored the winning goal, a big goal. He's the sort of player that you and I love to watch. Diminutive, low centre of gravity, great dribbling ability. Looks like he's got bags of quality uh, in his left foot. And yet the performances and the output have not always or potentially ever matched up to um, what is considered to be a player with a, a lot of potential. So potentially we might see him back down at this level. He's only on loan at the moment. We may see him back down at this level uh, doing the business next season. Charlton and Birmingham drew 1-1. It doesn't really tell the whole story here because Charlton Athletic 1-0 up for the majority of this game, uh, having gone ahead through Macaulay Bon. Bon had been quite publicly criticised for poor finishing by Lee Bowyer on the weekend. I mentioned on our pod on Monday that that felt like something of a risk with someone who may be low on confidence already. And there he was slotting home for 1-0 and everything pointed to a Lee Bowyer man management masterclass. And the problem was they couldn't get a second. McGeady hit the post. Bond missed a chance from about three yards, which was excellent goalkeeping in fairness. Uh, and the inevitable happened. A Birmingham side that really have nothing to play for, who don't have a manager at the moment, uh, and who we would just expect to, to roll down and die here. They managed to nick a goal in the 93rd minute. It was a bit of quality from superstar Jude Bellingham. And I will call him superstar because in a year or two's time, everyone is going to have caught up with how good this young player is. Um, he will be joining Borussia Dortmund. That is coming from the source on German football, Rafa Honigstein. He wrote a whole piece on the Athletic site this week, how Dortmund beat Manchester United to another rising star. Loads of great detail about Bellingham's move to Dortmund, which we expect to go through uh, soon after the season is finished. But, you know, Lee Bowyer just fuming after the game, basically said, very honest, he basically said, if we hadn't conceded that goal, we'd be safe, I reckon. But now, I'm not sure we are. We've got to play Wigan and then we've got to play Leeds. And... It's just so tough. It's so, so tough. It's so grim down there. And these goals make such a big difference. Uh, there was another one all draw at the bottom. Luton, who are still in the relegation zone, but might have some hope now. They drew one all with QPR. Yes, although this will feel certainly like uh, a couple of points dropped because they were they were leading at home against a QPR side with nothing whatsoever to play for. A few parallels, been, really, with, with what I was just saying in Charlton, Charlton Blues. Exactly. And, and who have been playing with as if they've got nothing to play for as well. So I think Nathan Jones will be looking at this result as being a, a massive opportunity missed because a win here would have put them um, at least, you know, even uh, when you take the, the points off Wigan, would have, would have put, taken them out of the relegation zone. So it, it's obviously still a good point at this stage. Um, these points are good points, but when you're a couple of, you know, when you need to climb above teams and you're leading at home, 
against this side with nothing to play for, I think they'll be pretty um, frustrated not to have got over the line. But nonetheless, when, definitely, definitely still better than a win. And you look at their final two games, they've got Hull away coming up on the weekend, which is obviously huge. Gigantic. <laughs> and then they host a Blackburn side who, similarly to QPR, will have nothing to play for on the day. So um, it, it's so tight at the bottom. And there, as I said, there are six teams in it. It's, it's Wigan, Huddersfield, Charlton, Hull, Luton and Barnsley. I have a feeling that after this, after this afternoon, we'll probably be able to say that it's 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 five teams into two um, because Barnsley are going to struggle to get anything from this Leeds game despite Calvin Phillips's absence. In which case, um, it's all going to become a lot clearer when mm. four of those five teams play against each other on the weekend. Oh my God, when you put it like that. When you put it like that, Huddersfield <laughs> still very much in it, aren't they? they? They lost to Luton last Friday night. The fans were apoplectic. They got a nil all draw against Sheffield Wednesday in midweek. It was not a classic, as the scoreline might suggest. Huddersfield probably did have the, the better chances to win the game. It feels like even without any home fans there to boo them and to get on their backs, they do feel a little more, bit more comfortable playing away from home at the moment, which is, which is interesting. And, and the same seems to uh, the same can be said for Luton as well. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting wrinkle of post-COVID football at the moment behind closed doors. Um, look, some massive games this weekend. Charlton Wigan, have you, as you've said, Hull against Luton, just huge. On Thursday night, Leeds against Barnsley. Make sure you're watching that game. If Leeds win, they could be promoted against Derby uh, this weekend. I think we know that when we sit down and talk on this podcast, this time next week, George, on Thursday... Every single game will have been played. We will <laughs> stop trying to predict. We will stop looking at fixtures and trying to work out whose fixtures are nicer than other teams. We will stop using the word momentum when we really mean the word form. And we will know who will have been relegated, who will have been promoted from this magnificent, maddening football division, the, the, the English Championship, which we love very, very much. Harry's sponsors Going Up, Going Down, which is a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced raises. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And, and now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. A weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Now, as a listener of Going Up, Going Down, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £3.95. Support this podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash going up right now. That's harrys.com forward slash going up. So still two games left in the championship and plenty to sort out. We're sifting through it all in our midweek roundup later on in the podcast. There are a few teams that we know will be in the championship next season. Of course, three coming up from League One in Coventry and Rotherham and Wickham Wanderers who won the playoff final on Monday night. But one confirmed down from the Premier League is Norwich City. Uh, not been long since we last covered them, to be fair. Uh, and covering them for the Athletic in the Premier League this season has been Michael Bailey, who joins us to, to talk all things Norwich City. Michael's written the, the relegation piece on Norwich City. Project Rebound, Norwich are officially down, so what happens next? That's on site at the moment. You should go and read that, and Michael's going to talk us through it. So thank you for joining us on the pod today, Michael. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. And thanks for such lovely words last in your last podcast as well. I've much appreciated. Not at all. Well, you could probably tell from, from that that Ali and I are delighted to be having our old friends Norwich back with us in the EFL. But fair to say, we're probably the only ones with a soft spot for Norwich who feel that way. What is the overwhelming feeling at the club? I mean, this has been on the cards for the best part of, of six months, uh, but relegation only confirmed in the week. Yeah, I think, um, well, we never go too far away, Norwich, from the EFL, so don't worry about that. I think, um, 
uh, I think it's a really interesting mix because I think inside the club there is um, there is a, a real um, attempt at a kind of balancing between the fact that this wasn't uh, this this wasn't the aim. The aim wasn't to just get relegated, look like no one bothered trying either on or off the pitch and then pocket the money, which I think some people have, have maybe assumed. So it's not that, but, uh, but, but likewise with a club that has the television money and then no one adding anything to that as a revenue, um, they, they really don't have the spending power of any other club. They've, they've opted to do something that Norwich didn't do in the in the Premier League before, which was try and use the money to improve the training ground and infrastructure. They they spent a, a decent amount on bonuses and, and they made the prize for getting promoted for the current squad quite big. So, you know, money kind of went into that rather than recruitment. They didn't spend all the money they had. That's, that is true. Um, but I think they would, they, there's obviously an element of trying to pr- protect the club over the next three or four years worth of growth rather than throwing it at at one season so you know that's it, it's hard probably trying to um, reconcile that with with the, the the feeling that they haven't maybe um pushed the boat out so i think that's sort of the struggle inside the club outside it's probably quite similar it depends on the attitude of each fan because some some fans do do want to see that level of um aggression i suppose towards going for it and trying to achieve something um but others would probably rather have a you know, a, a more secure club and I'm going to kind of buying into the fact that over the next three or four years, there'll be a continuous amount of progress, um, which I suppose is why for me next season is so important because there is going to be a, a very different pressure on, on Daniel Farker, on Stuart Webber and, and on the squad that they, they haven't had in their time at Norwich. Um, and like any good relegation, there's there's a good amount of fallout. The fans are all sort of infighting with each other over social media, which is probably because they can't get together in person at the moment. And um, so, it, it, and there's obviously a very quick turnaround. So it's not a great place to be as an Norwich fan at the moment, even though they've tried to kind of insulate themselves from it um, to a degree. Um, but ultimately when Norwich start playing competitively again, and I don't mean the remaining two games of this season, um, they, we, we will get, we will get an answer as to where they are mentally and then how, how quickly the fans want to uh, forgive what has been their worst ever season of, of football in, in a league, um, which is a pretty horrendous uh, statistic, to be honest. One of the things that makes Norwich a really interesting team to cover from my perspective and quite different to a lot of other clubs, both in the Championship but also the Premier League, is how much of a front-facing influence Stuart Webber has on the club. Uh, the sporting director who, as I think everyone knows by now, had a big impact at Huddersfield and on their promotion to the Premier League and a huge impact on Norwich City and their promotion to the Premier League. He's someone with a great reputation in the game. And it's been him this week that's come out, taking the flak, been the public face of Norwich's relegation. That's kind of rare. I can't think of too many people in his position that are quite as uh, public and in the way that they deal with things. What have you made of, of what Weber said this week and what you sort of touched on there, trying to trying to find that balance between what's called a lack of ambition, which basically in a fan sense just means not spending transfer fee money. Um, how much do you think the fans have accepted what he said this week about how the how the club are, are dealing with relegation. Yeah, I think um, in terms of supporters, I think a it's hard to speak on obviously on all their behalves, but I think a majority have listened to what Stuart Webber has said and are probably grateful that he is the one currently leading the club. And he, he does, he's part of a three person executive committee um, who all have an equal say and they can all have they say across different departments because Stuart Weber effectively looks after the football department. They've then got Ben Kensel, who looks after the commercial and financials, but they, and and uh, Zoe Ward, who uh, sort of um, looks after various projects and which have you. And that they all have a they all have a say in what each other is doing. Um, but they kind of bow down to whoever is the expert. But but you know Stuart does have a significant influence across all of the club. Um, so again, I think there will be some fans who won't have liked what this season has been. They will have issues with it, and they. You know, they probably will pick holes in what um, Weber said. Um, I think because of the way Norwich are funded, the majority of fans would probably feel happy with it. Um, personally, I, I thought it was an interesting tactic for him to take 
almost sole blame um, that the squad wasn't good enough for the Premier League. They put their faith in the squad that got them up. Um, they didn't adapt quickly enough and therefore he didn't build a squad that was ready for the Premier League. And I think um, I can understand that that's, a, that's a probably a good way of deflecting um, criticism away from Daniel Farker um, and sort of protecting them because clearly the players and the head coach and the supporters all need to be sort of you know, on the same page come next season. It's a very quick turnaround. But um, I also don't think it's fair um, because I think that ha- whilst Daniel Farker has stuck to his principles uh, very you know, rigorously, especially before we had the, the suspension, um, I, I do think there's, there have been there have been some issues and some things that haven't really worked that he has um, has tried to put in place in terms of um, the shape and, and the balance in the side. He clearly hasn't been helped with injuries. I still think there's something to be looked at in terms of how Norwich avoid um, certain injuries and maybe a culmination of injuries in certain positions. And I really hope they're looking at that. And I really hope that although uh, Weber took full responsibility, that Daniel will be analysing how he can improve himself as well over the summer because ultimately responsibility for relegation is collective um the the players haven't been good enough the things daniel has done haven't been good enough and yes weber hasn't really put together a good enough squad either so it's going to take all of them to have learned from this season to make it better going forward so when i say that i obviously mean in the championship but then hopefully with promotion and then hopefully the next time they get to the premier league so if you're going to have a a bigger picture long-term thinking ultimately you kind of have to talk about it in in those couch terms as well i'm interested in the idea that the squad wasn't good enough because if you if you take the players in isolation and i know that you listened to our podcast on monday so you've heard me say this already but you've got six or seven players who I would have thought if they did move on, and I know you, you've written in your piece, it'll ideally only be three that are moved on, presumably Cantwell, Brendia and, and Godfrey. But you've got, you know, Lewis, you've got, um, you know, you've got Pookie, you've got Aarons. These are all guys who I'm sure that if they were on the market, they'd be snapped up pretty quickly. So if you've got a first team where over half of them are, are supposedly seen as Premier League quality, having played in the Premier League, there has to be an issue there with with the management, but all but all the you know all the the words coming out of the club are that Farker's absolutely got the full support of of Weber and, and the board. Yes, he most certainly have has, and in fact, there was there was one line from Weber where he basically said Daniel will be here as long as he wants to be, as far as he's concerned. I mean, that is a remarkable thing to say, to be honest, because you know if they don't win their first ten games next season, I don't know if it's quite that straightforward. But but he said it, and that's on the record, and I think that underlines where they're coming from um, in terms of Daniel Farker, and uh, um, you know collectively they haven't been good enough this year, and and so that always if if you look at the 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 sum of the parts so to speak if it's less than what it should be then that that's always the head coach's issue as far as I'm concerned um and there have been defensive issues um all over the place again it's hard to separate those from the from the availability of personnel as well um I actually sat I mean given I wrote this piece I sat down the other um probably yesterday I think it was and tried to work out well actually who would leave and not leave and I still came up with more than three so it's (laughs) (laughs) even I'm struggling to really reconcile it or I've seen a link of Buendia to Atletico Madrid which to me just seems like the absolute perfect player for the perfect team (laughs) (laughs) given how given how scrappy he can be but also creative uh, for him to play on the right side of Simeone's 4-4-2 I mean it's the dream transfer for me personally it will be it'll be lovely to see what Emmy does do next wherever it is and I think I think each player is has its has its um, own kind of situation so it's it's quite difficult to to group them all together. So Emi Buendia, I think you can you can see him as a player who is probably a very good player in a better side who would really flourish but has struggled with you know having a sort of end product in terms of assists and and, and goals maybe and and he's looked like a good player in a poor side. So uh, it, a lot of it a lot of it will be fascinating which teams do come in for which players and how much they're willing to offer. So I think Jamal Lewis could be gettable for a sort of a, a, a bottom half Premier League side if they put enough money in. Um, but I don't think Norwich would sell Max Aarons to a similar club because I think they would probably want more money. But then would the bigger teams put the money in? Um, likewise, Ben Godfrey, I think, is going to be a, a, a superb centre-back. But I think this year he hasn't looked at that level yet. He, he isn't good enough in the position 
at Premier League level at the moment. He almost certainly will be, but he's only been playing centre-half for a season and a half, really, because he only came into the Norwich side at the start of last year, if I've got that right. I don't even know what day it is, to be honest. But yeah, so... um, (laughs) So I think Ben Godfrey is there, but again, is a is a is a big Premier League side going to have the foresight to say, you know what, we're going to sling forty million quid at Ben Godfrey, but we're going to loan him somewhere else and not worry about him. So it's going to be, you know, that's interesting, and then that's going to depend on which players go where. I think I have to say I'm not so. Temu Puki is really interesting because I don't think Norwich are too fussed about, I think I heard you guys say this, I don't think Norwich are too fussed about recouping any money on his fee because he didn't cost them anything. I think as they see it. The longer they have Timu Pukki, the better, because the value comes from his service. And also he has scored 29 goals the last time he scored in the last time he played in the championship. So I actually, and I think he's quite settled. So I think there will be interest in Timu. The question is, does he want to go to Portugal um, when he's settled here? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anyone around Timu knows the answer to that yet. But I think he... I don't necessarily see him going. And I have to say, I was thinking about it. I mean, you think about the fact they got Tim Krul on a free two seasons ago. You know, his season in the championship was was kind of indifferent, but it was almost him getting back up to speed. This year, he's looked a Premier League goalkeeper. To me, he's probably one of the most important players that they keep because I don't know how you replace someone like Tim for the value you've got. So if I was Stuart Webber, I'd be slinging a new contract at, at Tim Krull straight away and making sure he's not going anywhere. Um, so I think they're, you know, they're the, they're the sort of issues, but there, there will be players, their positions they're going to need to strengthen on top of all that as well. Mm. We're going to find out a lot more over the next six weeks. No doubt we'll be talking to you again uh, as the season approaches and Norwich will most likely, given a prior knowledge of of how these things work, be one of the favourites for promotion in the Championship next season. And it'll be fascinating to see how they approach it. I think this will be the third consecutive Championship season where none of the teams that have come down from the Premier League have finished in the automatic promotion places. It is not simply as easy as having the parachute payments uh, to work with. So thank you for joining us, Michael. We look forward to speaking to you again uh, and and look forward to hearing who leaves, who stays and who is added to this Norwich side. Always a pleasure, boys. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. Right, for the next part of the podcast, we have a few questions on some serious EFL topics. And when something happens in the EFL neighbourhood, who are you going to call? Matt Slater. (laughs) Matt, thank you for joining us. Ghostbusters. Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? (laughs) Fine, thank you. I'm afraid we're using you again for your knowledge and ability to to speak on on important topics. So we'll get straight into it, starting with... A big question with regard to League Two, with regard to Macclesfield and Stevenage. Yeah. Are we any closer to knowing who will be relegated from League Two to the National League? Well, we're a tiny bit closer, I suppose, uh, but only in that yeah, since we last spoke, an appeal's gone in. We know that. Um, the EFL took f- the full 14 days to, to lodge that appeal. They're under an awful lot of pressure from Stevenage to do so, but not just Stevenage. As I've explained on, on other podcasts and in, in, a, in a written piece, um, several clubs in the EFL were, were very annoyed at um, how leniently they felt Macclesfield had been dealt with. And whilst they perhaps didn't have a dog in the fight, they just thought there was an important principle at stake there. So we are going to have a hearing. Um, Macclesfield themselves have put out a little update on Tuesday evening to say there's going to be a pre-hearing, which I suspect will be one to sort of nail down a a date, but also to address this situation of Stevenage themselves wanting to take part in the hearing. Now, that's actually allowed in the rules. When there's an appeal, um, other parties that have an interest in the matter um, can make a representation. Now, in the first case, it was just EFL versus Maxfield Town on the late payments issue. On, on an appeal, 
other people can have their say. Uh, it's up to the it's up to the panel, who would most likely to just be a judge, uh, to say, well, yes, you you, you know you you are relevant here or not. Um, but I strongly suspect Stevenage will be allowed to have their say. They certainly want their say, and I think there might even be some some written representation from, from some other clubs. But um, so that, that pre-hearing is at the end of this month. And then Macclesfield Town's best guess is a real hearing, is an actual hearing in early August. Now, um, it's August the 3rd is a Monday. So most likely we're talking about that week. You know, appeal verdicts, if we look at what's gone on this season, I think there was a Bolton EFL appeal that took about 10 days for you know to get a result. Uh, we've been averaging about you know a week and a half, two weeks for for all these results to come out of these disciplinary commissions, which we've had so many this season in, in the EFL. So I think we're looking at you know mid-August. Now that's pretty remarkable for two teams to not know if they're going down to the National League or not, particularly when you think that the next season is penciled in to start either that you know right at the end of august or you know the first the first week of september we're talking about two or three week turnaround which is which is no one no one wanted this this is far from ideal and there's an awful lot of unhappiness about this matt you also mentioned on twitter that the championship relegation battle which we are assuming is going to be you know concluded next wednesday given points deductions and the like that could also drag on into the summer as well yeah, yeah, very similar situation. So, I mean, the, the championship relegation fight is 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 remarkable, isn't it? How many teams are still involved? Um, I make it that seventeenth and down to so Stoke and down. Anyone on fifty points, they're not safe yet. You know, Barnsley have got forty three with three to play. I know they've got a ridiculous run in, but um, you know, mathematically they can they could still get to fifty two. And then you've got then you've got Sheffield Wednesday and you've got Wigan, who uh, have more points than that, but could be dragged right into the relegation zone or there or thereabouts if they get the deductions that many expect. Now, Wigan already have an automatic 12-point deduction hanging over them because of uh, going into administration. They've appealed against that. Uh, they feel that um, they might be able to sort of claim a, a force majeure way out of it, that this is just so unprecedented, so shocking and out of the blue that you know it's not like your average insolvency. I think that might be a difficult case to argue, actually, but um, we will see. I think the, the interesting thing about Wigan is they may not need that appeal in the end because they're playing so well. They, the way that the deductions work is if the team is in the relegation zone, the 12 points come off next season because, you know, there's no point punishing them again and there should be a punishment so it will come next season. But if they're outside of the relegation zone, it comes this season. Now, 12 points at the moment, I think, puts them in 24 first place level on points with Hull who of course they just spanked 8-0 but they've got a much better goal difference I mean they had a better goal difference before so they, they're, they're one place above the relegation zone and, I, and they've got I think Charlton to come and then is it Fulham so they're, they're one of the form teams I think they've won five out of the games five out of seven since the restart they were playing well before so Wigan Wigan might not need their appeal however you know if the results go against them the, the appeal becomes live again and we haven't got a date for that Sheffield Wednesday I think is the bigger one so Sheffield Wednesday is this enormous complicated case I know we've talked about it I think before uh, to do with the stadium sale um, it's dragged on they were charged in November so it's taken ages to come to a hearing the hearing was three weeks ago we are expecting a result in the next day or two I know the EFL are desperate to get a result out before they play again on Saturday um, but they, they they could get 21 points. They could get 12 points. They could get nine points. They could get no points. It's it, No one knows for sure. What I can tell you is many of the clubs around them in, in the championship believe that 12 points should be the minimum. Uh, some are saying, you know, I've, one guy told me 21 points, you know, otherwise it's a travesty. Um, you know, they, they feel that Sheffield Wednesday's breach of the financial fair play rules is so bad that it, they need to be hit with the, with the highest possible sanction. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I think it's entirely possible they could get 12 points. Birmingham City got nine points last year. 
if you discount the stadium sale and it's all to do with the timing of when they push that through they they are on for a for a big big loss that particular year and um you know 12 points would would appear to be you know the the order of the sanctions so Sheffield Wednesday Big uncertainty there. If they lose, they'd appeal. The EFL uh, lose and Sheffield Wednesday avoid the relegation. I can see anybody that is being relegated will be all over the EFL to appeal. So, you know, you get that sort of two-week spell for an appeal. Then you have the appeal itself. It could be a month. It could be six weeks. We're, we're talking September really before, before I see that being resolved. And then, I mean, it's not part of the relegation picture, but there's, there's you know, Derby County hearing, I think it was this week for a similar issue it would require them to have a, a massive penalty and, I, and, I, and the Sheffield Wednesday and Derby cases are different and I don't think anyone is expecting Derby County to, to be in as much hot water as Sheffield Wednesday it's more of a that one's more of a disagreement about valuation but there's just the, the disciplinary backlog is is just remarkable I've, I've never seen anything quite like it where you have you know three outstanding four outstanding cases with a, you know with possible appeals to come at a time when they weren't going that quickly anyway. You've got some holidays coming up. I keep hearing about diary clashes with lawyers and, 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 and the judges and having to find new panels. You know, if it's an appeal, it's got to be a new panel. It's it's become a bit of a mess. And uh, with so many teams down there, so many big teams as well, so many teams down there who are very keen on financial fair play as well and have been upset and moaning about things all season, rightly so in many ways, I think legal disputes are inevitable and confusion this summer is inevitable. You're going to be a very busy man, I'm afraid, Matt. Uh, and and one quick point on your exclusive uh, on IFAB extending the five substitutions rule, if you can call it that, uh, <laughs> for the 2021 season as well. From our perspective uh, across the EFL, that's not gone down particularly well for a number of reasons. One popular suggestion has been a potential addition uh, for, for more minutes for younger players, something like uh, the EFL to say the fourth and fifth sub have to be under 21. For example, do you know if there's any scope or appetite from the EFL for, for that to, to be the case? I, I don't know. I, I've heard the same as you. It's interesting, isn't it? And it would sort of tie in with a lot of what they've been talking about for the last couple of years, you know, be it with a leasing.com trophy or just just a lot of the conversation in the EFL. What's, what, is the, what is the EFL for? What's the pyramid for? So I, I think it's a good idea. Um, yeah, look, the funny thing about the five subs thing is that it was there in the FIFA suggestion all along. Um, FIFA suggested it back in, I think it was at the end, towards the end of March, as this sort of temporary solution because anyone coming back to play to finish this season was going to you know, undoubtedly do so in a congested time frame. And then they knew there'd be knock-on effects for next season. So there, there, there was a sort of, there's a rationale to the suggestion and we've got it in two bits. IFAB said, yes, for sure. IFAB are the, the people that kind of oversee the laws. You know, let's, let's, definitely, let's definitely bring it in for the end of this season. And that kind of went through pretty, pretty smoothly. It, 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 this is sort of surprised people, but people have got to remember that next season's going to be pretty congested and tight anyway and I know it's really divisive um, I think the real issue will be is this actually just one big pilot project and, I, and I've wondered that about quite a few things that are going on at the moment water breaks for example and um, we will see if we'll just get used to this is this just something that big clubs players agents TV people quite like bigger squads more people we seem to be sort of creeping ever more towards i don't know a kind of more american approach to, to football um you know tactical specialists and it's it, again it gives us it gives us more to think and talk about doesn't it you know kind of how you play your your five subs and uh, you know w w we will see i know that it's not only the efl that have serious problems with this but I do wonder, like lots of other innovations in the past, we just get used to it. Sobering as ever, Matt. We love <laughs> speaking to you about all things football and I'm sure this won't be the last time this summer that we get to pick your brains about all of the crazy goings on in the EFL. But thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. No problem at all. See you guys. Right. And breathe. It is 
breathless stuff at the moment in the EFL with fixtures coming thick and fast. And I think this podcast was certainly in keeping with that. Thank you so much to Matt and to Michael for talking us through various interesting topics. And George, just think, next time we sit down to record the Going Up, Going Down pod, the Championship regular season will be finished. Regular season, very important there, given what Matt Slater just said. The on-pitch stuff might be finished, but we might be talking about Championship relegation for another month or so. Uh, but so much uh, still to happen over the next uh, week or so. Next Wednesday evening is going to be absolutely brilliant at both ends of the table. Really excited for that and looking forward to sitting down with you again and going through it. Thank you very much to both of our guests today. Uh, Michael Bailey's stuff on Norwich has been brilliant all season and really looking forward to having him covering them in the Championship next season and Matt Slater as ever. So, so good and so informative on all the big issues in football. Can't believe he actually sang Ghostbusters back to me during my intro to him. That really did make me happy. What a fantastic uh, duo they have been for this week's pod. And to you, the listener, thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Going Up, Going Down podcast. We hope that you're enjoying this pod. We hope that you will subscribe uh, to make sure that you get all of the episodes as soon as they are released. Uh, A reminder that The Athletic has a ton of good podcasts and they're all available for free on all pod platforms, but they're also available ad-free to subscribers of The Athletic. If that's not you, then it can be. If you head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod, you'll get a 30-day free trial. Be a good place to start to read pieces by Michael Bailey and Matt Slater. And from there, well, hundreds of other good sports writers. So do join The Athletic today, theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod. We will be back again next week. We cannot wait to dissect whatever happens over the next seven days of the championship season. Make sure you join us then. Have a good weekend.